Uh, let's look at Mark together first. You can turn to Mark chapter 12. And we'll, we'll look at Yeshua and uh, some things we can discover about him. In, I love the last story in Mark. Because it's not recorded in Matthew or Luke or John. It's singular to the book of Mark. And the whole book of Mark has a more personal feel. It has little things about Yeshua, the way he looked at someone, the emotion on his face, or his, his tone of voice. Or some places it'll say in other Gospels, the disciples said to him thus and so. But in Mark it says, Peter said to him thus and so. So you know it's Peter's voice behind this narrative. And this is an awesome story like that. Yeshua is sitting in the temple... And that's, he's just sitting there. He's just sitting and watching people go by. He's just sitting there watching people go by. He's people watching, essentially. But he's doing more than that. He's people watching with his disciples. At least Peter was there. They might not have all been there. And uh, he, was, he was commenting on some things. And I don't know, have any of you ever just sat there and people watched? Yeah. I have. My friends and I, we used to go to the mall and just sit there and watch people. Because, like, everybody's different, people are unique, and so often there'll be, like, these little mini-dramas playing out that you can watch, eh? And I think Yeshua probably enjoyed doing that. Maybe he's still a people-watcher. I don't know. But what I get out of that is Yeshua's still alive. We still have the connection with him, except it's even closer. And we can sit there and, like, watch the world around us and observe people and hear what he has to tell us. That's something I've really been trying to incorporate in my relationship with him lately. Like being like, Master, what do you think of this? Or what's your take on this? You know, what's your perspective? And he never fails to answer. It's awesome. So that's, that's a dynamic in the book of Mark that's still around today for us. Can get his comments. So uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, is asked what the greatest commandment is. And this is interesting because the books of Matthew and Luke only give the last half of his statement. But the book of Mark gives the full statement, and it's the Shema, the hero Israel that we do every week. And this is touching to me, because it just, it just communicates how deeply Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Um, the Shema is the height of the synagogue liturgy. The Shema is the very first verse that parents teach their child while he's still on the knee, while she's still on the knee. It's the Shema. Uh, the Shema is the last words of an observant Jew before they die. That means in the Holocaust, in the gas chambers, in the places where the Jewish people were executed, the Shema was sung and recited and whispered and gasped probably hundreds of thousands of times by Jewish people who were dying. For that reason, over the centuries and over the millennia, the Shema has become hallowed. It's something very near and dear to the Jewish heart. And the fact that Yeshua says it's the greatest commandment is such an expression of that. It's why I really, I really enjoy doing the Shema together as a congregation. It's, a, it's something I think every Christian should learn and uh, know inside out and backwards. So the Shema also is the very first words of a Jewish person in the morning when they wake up. It's the very, very last words before they go to bed at night. It's like the original bedtime prayer. In the Jewish household, when parents go to pray with their children... Before they go to bed, they say the Shema. Uh, Genevieve and I have tried to incorporate that into our lives. And it's powerful. When you wake up, and the very first thing you do is remind yourself of God and that He exists, that He's your God, and that you get to love Him today. That there's that call to love Him. It's, it's awesome. I, I uh, highly recommend it. So the Shema, when you wake up in the morning, just do it. The Shema, when you go to bed at night, just do it. I can't wait to teach tears of the Shema. That's going to be really special. 
So uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 39. Yeshua goes on a short rampage. Uh, he calls a certain sector of religious men on the carpet. And I just kind of wonder, if Yeshua was around today, who would he take to task? Like, I wonder what kinds of choice words he'd have for people, eh? Because he did have that side to him. I mean, he was like, he was gentle and mild and all this stuff, but he was also a lion. And uh, I'm not going to take that any farther, but I would like to know what he has to say today. In, uh, chap- There's a lot of conflict going on in Mark chapter 12. Maybe you noticed that uh, earlier on in that, in that chapter, he tells a parable, a story about a vineyard. And this is remarkable because if you have a Bible that indicates when there's a quote from the Tanakh going on, you'll see that the beginning of this parable in Mark chapter 12, verse 1, it's, he's quoting from the Tanakh. See, I, I, I like to read the NASB, and it has the initial uh, couple sentences in all caps. And it's the story of a vineyard. And in the Jewish world, when you quote the first couple of verses or the first phrase of a passage, you're quoting a whole passage. So in order to understand what this parable of the vineyard is and how the Pharisees took it, you need to go back and read the original one. So let's look at that. It's Isaiah chapter 5. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 5. And Yeshua, basically, his parable is a spin-off on Isaiah chapter 5. And he also kind of, like, boosts it, too. It's a juiced-up version. So uh, it's like the story of Isaiah's beloved, who was Elohim, and his vineyard, who were the people of Israel. And uh, there are a couple notable things I'll point out. In chapter 4, okay, the first verses, it says he's like, he, he takes great care to plant the perfect vineyard. And he's, he feels so good about this vineyard. He really poured himself into it. It was an investment. And then in verse 4, crash. It says it only produced worthless grapes. So just hear the echoes in Yeshua's parable with these echoes from Isaiah 5. It produced worthless grapes. Uh, verse 6 mentions drought, which is interesting because Acts chapter 11 at the end mentions a massive drought that hit Judea. It lasted for two or three years. A lot of people died from it. Uh, Josephus recorded that drought also. Uh, verse 13 of Isaiah 5 mentions exile. Where did the people of Israel go at the end of the Second Temple era? Exile. Uh, verse, verses 26 to 30 of Isaiah 5 it describes the agents of exile. The invading army was powerful. It was unstoppable. It turned out to be the Roman legions. Verse 24 gives the reason for this multi-layered catastrophe. So when Yeshua is telling this parable to these religious dudes, you can just hear in their minds, they're thinking, Isaiah 5 scenario, all of these things. This means Yeshua is prophesying that we're, we're worthless grapes, that there is a drought coming, that an unstoppable army is going to sweep through and invade the country and take us into exile. And Yeshua's words proved to be incredibly accurate. In uh, verse 24, it gives the reason, and uh, we'll look at that for a second because it's kind of the whole cause, and causes always apply. It says, uh, why did this stuff happen? Because they've rejected the Torah of Yahweh of hosts. And they've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And this is, these are dangerous words because if we're from either a Christian religious background or a Jewish religious background, we're in danger of kind of like failing on one half or the other half of this little report card here, eh? Rejecting the Torah. Um, you know, in some sectors of Christianity, there's a strong background of rejecting the Torah. 
Yikes. Uh, if you come from a Jewish background, you have a strong background of rejecting the prophetic word. Uh, religious Judaism, the, you, you could call it rabbinic Judaism, is structured so that God isn't needed, that the prophetic word and the operation of the Holy Spirit isn't needed. Um, there's some things said in early Jewish literature about that. Like if there are a thousand and one authentic prophets of God speaking his word and there are a thousand rabbis, go with the rabbis. Okay? So, you know, th- this, this parable and consequence are still very applicable today. No. <laughs> who, would, who would reject a prophet? I mean, really, who would, re- who would stone a prophet or whip a... <laughs> That's true, they did. Um, Yeshua is, oh yeah, it says they rejected the purpose of God for themselves because they rejected John, the immerser first, eh? And isn't it weird too, eh? Like you would think people would accept a prophet, but the his- history says that the majority of God's people will not accept prophets when he sends them. It happened then and maybe it still happens. I think in a lot of cases, those guys had assassins on their tail and they had to, they had to be hiding out and, and, and kind of moving in stealth. Yeah. Wow. Okay, along those same lines about the Jewish and Christian background, in Mark chapter 12, verse 24, Yeshua is calling the Sadducees to task. He is all over the place in this chapter. And uh, he says they don't get it on two counts. He says they don't get the scriptures and they don't get God's power. And if we're from a Christian background, like we're really strong in the salvation message. Uh, If we're from a Pentecostal or charismatic background, we're we're also strong in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. Uh, These are things we're conversant in. But often when it comes to Old Testament dynamics, when it comes to how the book of Leviticus is a picture of Messiah and the priesthood that we're in, uh, when it comes to the fact that the Torah is literal, that it's for us today, that this stuff hasn't been done away with, we're pretty weak in that area generally. You know, I'm stereotyping, right? But it's interesting that that's the area the Jewish people are very strong in. So you have these two things that the Sadducees are weak in. The scriptures and the power of God. And it's interesting today that God has mainly two sets of people. And one of them are strong in his power. And one of them are strong in the scriptures. And I kind of wonder if we're not going to need each other. And that's why I'm really excited about the movement we're in. Because this is the first movement since the original Yeshua movement that is strong in the scriptures, we study the Torah and we go deep, and we're also strong in the power of God. We have that background in the, in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So I, I pray that we'll continue to grow in both of those, because it's like, it's a powerful duo. It's like the ultimate one-two punch from the Almighty to decimate the kingdom of darkness. So I, let's just continue to stay strong in the scriptures, strong in His power. <laughs> Okay, um, there's this phrase that Yeshua used frequently that really jumped out at me in this passage. He asks people, didn't you ever read this passage? Haven't you ever read that verse? And have you ever, any of you ever been in a conversation where someone says something and you just think to yourself, haven't you ever read the Bible? Like, haven't you ever read this passage or whatever? So we're going we're gonna to hit a couple of those today in the parasha. If you want to turn to the parasha with me, and uh, <laughs> this, this is the section I introduced a couple of weeks ago, tackling popular misconceptions. So I'm going to be going all over the place and killing sacred cows. And uh, we're, we, we've been having fun with this, haven't we? <laughs> um, something that my friend Paul Daniel in Saskatoon pointed out to me is to be a good Orthodox Jew. 
Like, if you want to practice Orthodox Judaism, you need to be very well educated by the time the thing's done. You basically have to have your equivalent of a PhD in Orthodox Judaism. There's a reason that the stereotype for Jews is smart. <laughs> like, when I was... Okay, here's an example. Even When I was working in the Blaine Lake area doing mechanical work and tire work, we'd go out in the truck to, like, on-site places and fields where farmers' combines, their mega combines, their, you know, their, 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 their tire would get a hole or whatever. We'd have to go change the thing. But I remember going up to one farmer, and he was like, Israel, wow, I like your name. Are you Jewish? And I said, yeah. And he said, wow, that means you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just, he, was a, he was a funny guy I liked his attitude but, it, but there's a reason for that stereotype so as, as we study on Shabbat mornings I'm going to make you really smart I'm gonna, okay, so I'm, I, just get ready I'm going to throw you something right now that you'll get in like upper level seminary education okay? that you would get but you don't get because there's some areas where I think our theology is a little off it's, uh, I'm going I'm to teach you about hierology today Everybody say hierology. Okay, going to teach you a Greek word. It's the Greek word for temple. Hieros. Everybody say hieros. It's number twenty-four, thirteen. Hieros. The word for priest is pretty much the same word. I think it's spelled hierius. Everybody say hierius. That word is twenty-four oh nine. So basically, the word for temple and the word for priest in Greek is almost the same. And do you know how, like, your, your, your understanding of the Almighty, your doctrine of God, like, theos, you call that theology, right? Um, your doctrine, your understanding of sin, or hamartia in Greek, is hamartiology. So we're going to be talking about hierology. And I don't know if this is actually even a word in the Christian academic world, but we're miles ahead on this one, Okay. You know, we're getting really smart here. Uh, I have a book in, here entitled The Temple and Bible Prophecy by Randall Price. Um, the pages are dirty because I used to take this to work when I did construction and I'd word it, read it at lunch times, which uh, only made me look even weirder. But uh, it was a great book. It's a great book. Randall Price is like the foremost scholar in the evangelical world on the temple not only the past history of the temple, but the future of the temple. Because there are prophecies in the scriptures about a future temple that most of us just kind of gloss over when we read the, New Te- the Old Testament, if we read the Old Testament. And uh, this guy is really keying in on those things and saying it's important. And there is valid theological grounds for believing that the Jewish people are going to build a temple in the future and that Yeshua is going to build a temple when he returns. So we're going to look at that today. I'm going to really... Uh, I'm going to drop a truth bomb into your lives in that area. A hierological truth bomb. So if you have any like really deep theological stronghold somewhere in your heart that says, oh, the temple stuff is all done away with, get ready. You might have a bunker-busting truth bomb hit that. So we're, we're going to have fun. We're just going to look at the scriptures together. We're going to see what it says so that Yeshua can't face us one day and say, didn't you read? We're going to read today. Uh, Ezekiel... Chapters 40 to 48. You can turn there. That's where we're going to start. <laughs> Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Don't worry, we're not going to read all eight chapters. But I do highly recommend that you read these last eight chapters in the book of Ezekiel like a, a dozen times, maybe a couple dozen times, because there are these passages that many of us have probably never even read through. 
and they're the most detailed description of what we would call in the Christian tradition the thousand year reign of Christ what we would call in the Jewish tradition the Yomi Mashiach the days of Messiah the Messianic era that we have on record this is a picture of your future if you're part of the people of Israel so Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 I'm going to take you in just like a flash overview of it and then we're going to see how these, this passage connects with the Parsha Chapters 40 to 42 of Ezekiel give the dimensions for a temple that has not been built. And right there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you guys how to look like a hermeneutic fool. How would you like that? Hermeneutics is this, the interpretation of Scripture, right? If you want to look really dumb in interpreting Scripture, then just allegorize everything away. Just say, oh, it's not literal, it's all spiritual. Because the number one rule for interpreting the scriptures for hermeneutics solid hermeneutics is read it literally interpret literally in its linguistic grammatical historical context I had a conversation several months ago with a pastor here in Prince Albert and he started taking pot shots at the temple and the sacrificial system and I said what about Ezekiel to 40 to 48 it talks about a future temple and some future things that are going to happen and you know what his response was? Oh, well, that's, that's, that's an allegory. That's spiritual, right? Like that, that's not literal, right? And right, right, that, right there, the conversation functionally ended. Because when you use the it's all spiritual application, then you, you can do away with your whole Bible. Don't commit adultery. Oh, that's just spiritual. That's just an allegory. That's not a literal physical commandment. I mean, really, where, where you start with some things, where does it stop? So let's have a look at this, knowing that it's literal. Okay, chapters 40 to 42. A temple, very clear directions for how to build it and its dimensions. This hasn't been built yet. This is common knowledge in the Jewish world. Uh, Chapter 43 describes the glory. The glory filling this future temple. I'm going to call it the Messianic Temple. Because it talks about the Messianic Prince, who is Yeshua, and the role that he's going to play in it. And this is the temple that's only going to happen when Yeshua returns. Some people would also call it the Millennial Temple because it's going to be built during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay, so the glory filling the Messianic Temple. uh, Chapter 43 gives the dimensions of the altar and directions for its dedication. In Hebrew, we call that the Chanukah Tamizbeach, the dedication of the altar. Chapter 44, get ready for a massive bunker-busting truth bomb. It talks about admission to this temple and how the admission is going to be restricted to those who are circumcised in their hearts and in their flesh. Verses 7 and 9. Everybody say, whoa! Everybody say, circumcised in heart and flesh. Yeah, maybe there'll be a place for this in the future. Uh, that's Ezekiel 44, verses 7 and 9. It also gives a detailed job description of the priesthood and practical holiness instruction for them. Uh, Chapter 45 gives dimensions of the dedicated property for the temple and for the Levites who work there. It covers a just monetary system for the future, including just weights, just liquid and dry measures. Uh, It also talks about the Messianic Prince, who is Yeshua, and how he's going to provide for a whole slew of offerings. Whoa, there are going to be offerings in the thousand-year reign of Christ. In this temple, and it mentions explicitly, let's count them on our fingers, everybody. Get your thumb in action. Get your thumb in action. One, grain offerings, drink offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, and 
bulls and goats for sin offerings. There are even going to be sin offerings according to Ezekiel 40 to 48 in the Messianic era. Now, let me ask you, is Yeshua our sacrifice for sin? Amen. Yes, he is. Is Yeshua the ultimate sacrifice for sin? Amen. Has there ever been a time when the blood of bulls and goats truly atoned for sin? There has never been a time, and is there ever going to be a time? No. So are these sin offerings going to be atonement, or are they going to be a picture of Messiah's atonement? Okay, amen. I just want to, be on, I just want to make sure we're on the same track with that. And then, Ezekiel 45 lists the festivals that we're going to be doing in the thousand-year reign of Christ, including the weekly Sabbath, the monthly Rosh Chodesh, or New Moon, Passover, and Tabernacles. Whoa! Now you know what heaven's going to look like. I just, I just gave you the most detailed description of heaven that most people have ever heard. Okay, chapter 46, it describes the prince's property, where his residence will be. I hope Yeshua has a really nice palace. It describes the prince's mode of worship. He'll go in this gate of the temple, and he will exit this gate, etc. And it also describes his provision for the offerings for the festivals. So, you know, all of these animals that are going to be sacrificed, that's going to come directly out of Yeshua's wallet is what the Bible says. I guess he's going to be supporting this thing. Hopefully he won't be standing on the sidelines with the whistle saying, Tweet, tweet! That's supposed to be done away with! <laughs> oh, actually, the opposite. Yeshua is going to be funding this whole thing. And it's going to be a picture of him. Okay, chapter 47 and 48. These are the chapters we hear more of. We really like this chapter. It talks about the river flowing from the Messianic temple that will rejuvenate the Dead Sea. They're even going to be fishing it. You can stand on the banks with your fishing rod, fish in the Dead Sea. It also describes the allotment of the land of Israel to the tribes of Israel. Uh, The Messianic prince gets a special property, so does the priests. And then, Ezekiel chapter 48, this glorious glorious eight chapters uh, describing the kingdom, finishes with the names of the tribes of Israel, and the land that they'll get, and the name of the city which is Jerusalem. Oh, actually it doesn't say that specifically. It says, the name of the city, which is Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh is there. Everybody say, Yahweh Shammah. That's what that city is going to be called. Uh, The last verse of Ezekiel, chapter 48. Yep, okay. So that's your overview. So Shammah is, it's different than Shammah. So explain Shammah. Shammah ends with a hey, and you pronounce it uh, Shema, as in listen, ends with an ein, and you pronounce it Shema. So Shema has a, a depth to, to what? Shema means there. Okay. Yahweh is Shema, there. Okay. That's what it means. Well, you know, okay, there actually is more the direction of Zion. Yeah, I always have my, like, my internal compass going, so I always know where Zion is. Okay. Right. Okay, so now we're going to have a look at the Parsha, and we're going to look at some of this stuff that is specifically qualified that it's forever. It's for, throughout our generations. Uh, Ezekiel, oh sorry, Exodus, let's turn to Exodus two together. Chapter 27. Exodus 27. Are we having fun yet? I'm having yeah. fun. This is like truth bomb. Like, we are learning so much. Good work, you guys. This is like seminary level stuff, eh? Really. But it's so important. We need to know this. Okay, Exodus chapter 27. We're going to look at five things 
that God said were forever. And interestingly enough, just keep your radar on here and tell me if these aren't the things that we say are done away with often. We say, well, that was temporary. Well, that was for a dispensation in the past, etc. And we'll just see, okay? So we're going to play a little haven't you ever read game with this. Uh, Chapter 27, verse 21 of the book of Exodus, it says that the Aaronic priesthood is to keep the light of the menorah burning as a temporary arrangement, as a, for, you know, a past dispensation. No, it says it's forever. It says, um, actually, if you want to flip it one thing, Colin, that's a Hebrew word there. Everybody see it? Olam. Olam means forever. It means as long as space and time are in existence, as long as the physical universe is around, then this, this applies. All right? As far as I know, pinch yourself. Feels like we're still around Okay, that means that this is forever. This continues to be a job for the Aaronic priesthood. Interestingly enough, in Ezekiel, don't flip to Ezekiel, I'm just going to reference these for you. Chapter 44, verse 14, it talks about the service of the temple, which will include the lighting of the menorah. Chapter 28, verse 42 of Exodus, 28:42, it says that Aaron and his boys are going to wear modest linen pants when entering the holy place or when approaching the altar to minister. It says this is a law forever for him and his descendants after him. And would you know it, Ezekiel chapter 44, uh, verses 17 and 18, say the same thing. In the millennial kingdom, this is still going to apply. Uh, 284043. Thank you, Derek. 43? Yeah. It also says... Uh, I think, does it also say about generations? Yeah, okay. Just to clarify, you're starting in 42 yeah. as the promise, and then the forever is the 42. Okay, thank you, Derek. Uh, chapter 29, verse 9, let's move on to the third forever thing. It says, Aaron and his sons shall have the priesthood as a law forever. So how long is the Aaronic priesthood legitimate? Forever. How long will it apply for? I'm not going to give you the references in Ezekiel because the last six chapters of Ezekiel in every chapter mention the Aaronic priesthood and that they're still going to be doing their job in the kingdom of heaven, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Whoa. Okay, now, is there also the priesthood of Melchizedek that Messiah leads and that we're a part of? Yes, there is. So we're we're not diminishing that in any way. I'm just giving you some strong theological backing for your personal horology that would suggest that this stuff continues to be legitimate. And I'm going to show you in a minute why I believe this is very important for the church to come to grips with if we're praying for revival and for the glory of God to come. Uh, Chapter 29, verse 28, it uh, mentions that the breast meat of the wave offerings and the thigh meat of the heave offerings, everybody say yum, it's a big barbecue. Is Aaron and his son share forever? And Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 29 to 30, describe the portion that they get to eat in the millennial kingdom. Chapter, okay, and then the, let's see, the, where are we at here? One, two, three, four. Okay, the fifth one. The fifth forever is chapter 29, verse 42. It says uh, about the daily lamb offerings, the tamid offerings, it says there to be a regular burnt offering Throughout our generations. Everybody say throughout our generations. Okay. Are the people of Israel still around? Yes. Yes. 
I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but when, we, when someone says, oh, that daily lamb offering is done away with, what they're saying is, I wish the people of Israel would be done away with. Because that thing's going to be around as long as the people of Israel are around. The only way to get rid of it is to enact a total genocide, which is what people like Haman and, and Hitler have been wanting to do through the generations. It's not going to happen. Uh, chapter 29, verse 42. And then Ezekiel 46, 13 to 15 describes it in our future. Chapter 30, verse 8, um, Elohim says to Aaron to burn regular incense throughout your generations. And in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 14, it mentions the service of the temple, which includes burning the regular incense. <laughs> so there, there are six things for you that the creator of the universe explicitly said, these things are forever. These things are as long as the people of Israel exist throughout your generations. And strangely enough, these are the very things that often people try and lead us to believe are done away with, that they are temporary, that they were for a past dispensation. And to such suggestions, I would say, haven't you ever read the Bible? Haven't you ever read the book of Exodus? Have you never read the last eight chapters of Ezekiel? So hopefully we can be good Bible readers. And uh, the reason I'm saying all this is because there's a real move in the church today, and it is a move that I totally agree with, that's crying out for God to come in his glory. We know there's more to him and there's more to his presence. We know there's more to him dwelling in our midst. We know there's, there's more to revival and being alive in the Holy Spirit. And, and we're crying out for that. But that comes through the anointing. Because he is the anointing. Yeshua is the anointed one, isn't he? And when we pray for these things to come, but we simultaneously speak against the priesthood of Aaron, which, we, which is an anointed priesthood, and which has a legitimate anointing of God on it, we're, we're doing some antithetical stuff here. So I believe that as the Father pulls down some of these theological and hierological strongholds in our midst, that his glory is going to come. So maybe this message is part of the Elijah message of preparing the way for God to come in his glory, of preparing the way for the Holy Spirit to be poured out for genuine revival in the body of Christ. Maybe this is part of the Elijah message. I'll, I'll leave that with you to think about it. Okay, now that was, that was my number one topic for tackling popular misconceptions. We're going to tackle one more. <laughs> Are you ready? It's about why the Exodus happened. It's actually cool. This, like, in this parasha, he just says straight out why the Exodus happened. So let's look at that for a second. Um, okay. Like, we, uh, we as a movement, the Messianic Jewish movement, we have certain banners that we are called to fly. And this is a good thing because in history, church history, in every generation you have people who are raised up to call the body of Christ back to something that has been lost. Uh, you know, some of the big ones in the past would be justification by faith, adult immersion is an expression of your faith, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, having the Bible to read in your own language. People gave their lives for this. This was controversial in its time. And this restoration process isn't done. So you can see that there are always moves of God that have banners to fly. What are the banners that we as a movement are called to fly? Yeshua is the Messiah. The Messianic Jewish movement, that's a big banner. A witness to the Jewish community. Uh, the Torah is for us. Do you think that might be one? I think that's the big one. Torah is the banner under which we march. 
And of course, we know who the living Torah is, don't we? Yeshua is our, Yeshua is our banner. Okay, so I just want to say like practical expression of the commandments and seeing how the Torah is for us, this is a distinctive of us as a messianic community. And this is a good thing. I believe this is from God. But I also reminded of Yeshua's words. He said, you guys, you know Shabbat? Something greater than Shabbat is here. Guys, you know the whole temple system? Something greater than the temple is here. And that's what I want to look at for a second with you. Uh, Exodus chapter 29, verse 46, gives us the reason for the Exodus. It's so the book of Exodus could be written, because otherwise it wouldn't be able to be written. Without an Exodus, we'd have no book of Exodus. No, I'm, I'm joking. That's not what it says. It says uh, chapter 46, 2946. Derek, I think you read that passage. and Oh, it's just so powerful. It says... They will know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, the Exodus, that I might dwell among them. So why, why the Exodus? Yeah, and so that he could dwell among them. So the reason for the Exodus was his presence. Therefore, the reason for the future exodus that we've been discussing in passages like Jeremiah 16, Ezekiel 20, Revelation 12, is also all going to be all about his presence. Uh, let's back up one verse. Chapter 29, verse 43. Um, a couple of verses, sorry. It says something really simple. It says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel. So there's a point of rendezvous, and it's at the tabernacle where he dwells. And it shall be consecrated. How do your versions read that? Read that again. Um, 29.43 I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it will be consecrated by my glory. Uh, there, I think in that context it's talking about the tabernacle. Yeah, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified. Okay. Okay. Derek, I like that. I like Israel. Yeah. I like you too, thanks. Okay, so what was the substitute? The tabernacle no. substitute for? Um, okay, so it, it could be a reference to the tabernacle or to Israel. But what it says is it's going to be set apart, it's going to be sanctified or consecrated by what? By His glory. Okay, so how does that apply to us as a movement? What is, it, what is our main distinctive? What is it to be that sets us apart as a community? Is it to be our observance of the Sabbath? According to this passage. Is it to be Hebrew lingo, lingo that we like to throw around? Is it to be synagogue liturgy? Is it to be anything? No. These things are important. These things are part of the banner we fly. But I love the fact that our ultimate destiny is to be set apart as a movement by His glory. That is our destiny. Like Him Himself is what we're going after. And then all that other stuff falls into place, right? So uh, the question is, what's his glory? <laughs> um, I, I like Daniel Lancaster's definition of his glory. Uh, his definition is, his glory is the full weight of who he is. The full weight of who he is. Therefore, what was Daniel, what's Daniel Lancaster's definition of to glorify him? I like this too. To glorify him is to bring the full weight of who he is to bear in our lives and in the world around us. So his glory is who he is. And to glorify him is to bring the full weight of who he is to bear 
in our lives, in situations, in our communities. So, how does this apply? Um, who is he? he? He is love. He's humble. He's patient. He's compassionate. These are some things that describe him, aren't they? These are things that are part of his glory. And therefore, as a messianic movement, our distinguishing characteristics, like what sets us apart from the crowd, it's not supposed to just be our observance of the Torah or Hebrew lingo. Our distinctive should be our love, just like he's loving. Our compassion, just like he's compassionate. Our patience, just like he's patient. Our gentleness, just like he's gentle. <laughs> I, I don't know, like, do any of you ever spend time on Facebook? And watch some of the debates that go around on Facebook, pro-Torah debates and stuff. Man, some of them get less than pretty. Like sometimes, like I'll have like these arguments erupt on my on my Facebook wall in response to something I wrote, and I have to go down and delete them because I'm like, this is embarrassing. This does not reflect the full weight of who Messiah is. So maybe one of our distinctives as a movement is to be like the most loving and patient and gentle people that we can be. (laughs) And also be like in your face because Yeshua was and also be confrontational. There's that element to him, right? But that's just something I've been thinking about. So it's his personality and his tangible presence in our midst that's going to set us apart. Okay. Um, (laughs) One more area of uh, tackling popular misconceptions. If, you come, if we come from a Christian background, you know, we have a very strong tradition to like, take off our hats for prayer. Right? If you're wearing a cap, you take it off for prayer. You take it off when you go into your church building or whatever. This is a good tradition. I appreciate it. I have nothing, about, I have nothing against it. Um, even though I often wear a kippah, sometimes when we're going to pray, if I have a ball cap on, I'll take off my ball cap. Just because for me, it's a sign of reverence. You know, but uh, this tradition is based on 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about men wearing something on their heads or women wearing something on their heads, etc. Right? And this is an interesting example of what happens when we take Paul out of context, when we don't read him in a Torah context, because our traditional interpretation of this is based on Paul. Therefore, it would be a disgrace for a man to ever have anything on his head when he's praying or prophesying. Therefore, those Jews over there, those millions of Jews, they all wear those funny little round hats on their heads and it's all a disgrace. They're all against Paul. And you know, when you come to believe in Jesus and you believe in the New Testament, off with the keeper. No more keeper, buddy. You're not a Jew anymore. You're a Christian. Okay, that's kind of the approach. And that isn't attractive to a Jewish person. That doesn't bring people to Yeshua. Here's the thing, though. I'm, just, just, I'm going to give you a little verse from the Torah to blow that, that concept out of the water. Uh, chapter... 28 of Exodus verse 40 says that Aaron and his sons wore caps when they were worshipping. It says they wore caps when they were serving God in the holy place. So what I get out of that is we all need to start wearing turbans to church. So okay, so next week we're all going to start wearing turbans. And the, the higher the better because that will be a sign of how pious you are. Okay, okay, is that too culturally out of, out of uh, wacky? Caps, okay. Well, I'll start wearing ball caps, okay? No, I'm, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. The only reason I'm saying that is to say, when you, read the, when you read Paul's letters in context, Torah context, they make more sense, and they keep us from making up crazy interpretations. Uh, how many of you guys saw the macaroni principle teaching from First Fruits of Zion? We saw it in a, 
in our highest ode class. It's a good one. Check it out on YouTube if you haven't seen it. The Macaroni Principle teaching. It's funny. Okay, so... Um, oh, you can scroll it forward on. There's a picture of a cap. That would probably be kind of like the ones that Aaron and his sons wore. What? I don't know. Nike swoosh or something? I don't know what it is. Okay, can you finish here? We're going to look at a couple of things that tell us about Yeshua in this parasha because we just love Yeshua. He's won our hearts and we're totally, like, we're loyal to him. My heart jumps when I see stuff in the Torah about Yeshua. Uh, chapter 7, verse 20. The Hebrew wording is interesting. It's the very first verse in the parasha. He always says to Moses, and you, Moses, you do this. He repeats you twice in the Hebrew. And what does he say to do? He tells Moses basically to spearhead and oversee the building of the temple, or the tabernacle in this case. So it, it, it's a picture of Messiah because Yeshua is like Moses, right? As it was with the first Redeemer, so it will be with the ultimate one, is the, the axiomatic Jewish phrase for that. Yeshua will spearhead and oversee the building of the temple in the Messianic era, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Yeshua is also commanding the armies of God right now, just like Moses was with the armies of Israel, and he is building us into a headquarters where he can reside in his awesome power. That's how Yeshua is like Moses. Also in chapter 28, verse 1, it says, And you, Moses, you bring near to yourself Aaron and his sons. So this is a picture of the Messiah restoring the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic high priesthood in the Messianic era. This is good news to a Jew. Messiah is going to come and he's going to rebuild the temple. Messiah is going to come and he's going to reappoint the Levitical priesthood. Tell a Jewish person that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and he's going to do that when he comes back and you're going to be off to a good start. Because this is one of those hopes that resonate in the Jewish soul. It's one of the things that an Orthodox Jew prays for three times a day. So I'm giving you an example of like, this is a better way to communicate the gospel to Jewish people than tell them that all that stuff is done away with. Right, because there will be a false Messiah coming and a lot of people are going to fall, fall for him, aren't they? Okay, well, let's, let's watch each other on that one. We're going to go through by the grace of God, aren't we? No false messiahs for us, okay? Um, okay, we're going to finish with a couple really cool pictures of... That's good. Of the high priest, who is a picture of you, if you're a part of like Yeshua's priesthood, and is also a picture of Yeshua. Um, look at chapter 28, verse 31 with me. Exodus 28, verse 31. It says... Make the robe of the ephod all of blue. The Hebrew there is khalil techelet. And blue in the Hebrew mindset is really cool. Like it symbolizes the spiritual dimensions. So like you know that realm of reality that's higher than just like what you can feel and see with your, your eyes and everything? Blue is a picture of that. So you get this picture that the high priest is like the spiritual warrior. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of why I think he's pictured as a spiritual warrior. And he's like, he's able to slip back and forth between the lower dimensions of space-time that we're locked in and these higher spiritual dimensions that transcend the laws and the limitations of nature. That's like what the high priest is. This is what this all-blue garment, the Khalil Tehillot, is a picture of. And of course, is this true of Yeshua? Could he walk through walls? <laughs> yeah. 
They could walk on water. He could just slip in and out of the dimensions that we live in and into like the ultimate reality or whatever. So that's how this is a picture of Yeshua. Elijah did this too, eh? He would just appear out of nowhere. He could move at light speed, it seems. Uh, Philip, one second he's down in the desert on the way to Gaza, which is a really hot, dry area. And then boom, like the next second he's transported. I don't know if he was flying through space with his hair like going like this and his face all pulled back or whatever, but the next second he's way up somewhere else and he's just proclaiming Messiah, hey? Like, this is your heritage. This is the kind of stuff that I believe we are going to experience as a people in the future. Why should it only be for 2,000 years ago? Why should it only be for people like Elijah? Yeshua said, like, John was like Elijah, and those of us who are born into the kingdom are greater. We're on a higher spiritual level than him even. So, I want to experience stuff like this. I believe it's part of our heritage. We're getting to that. Just hold on. That's going to be the really cold part we're going to finish with. Okay, the next one. Uh, Okay, chapter 28, verse 32. Uses a Hebrew word that is only mentioned once in the whole Tanakh. And it's used in reference to the high priest in his armor. Chapter 28, verse 32 says, There shall be an opening at its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there will be a binding of woven work like a woman's apron. Oh, sorry. It says like the opening of a coat of mail. How many of you have, have seen like a coat of mail before? That's tough stuff. It's like all of those little tiny links that are linked together and you wear it and someone could take a sword and try and hack through you and they wouldn't even be able to cut into you. Like, it's a picture of spiritual armor. It's a... Sp- <laughs> it's the original Kevlar, totally. Like bulletproof, eh? Well, he wasn't wearing he wasn't wearing coat of mail. It says that his garment was like a coat. The Hebrew word is tachra. Can everybody say tachra? Tachra is the word for coat of mail. It's like this really tough word in Hebrew, tachra. Right? He was wearing something like tachra. Here, I have a couple more pictures just because I I, uh, I, w- I I like pictures of coats of mail. Okay, this is a picture of the high priest of Israel. It's a picture of you when you are functioning in the spirit, in prayer, and stuff like that. And it's a fi- ultimately a picture of Messiah. How many of you like, th- how many of you get a warm, fuzzy feeling, like a secure feeling, knowing you have someone like that watching out for you? I do. Okay, next picture. That's just another picture. That's like, a, go back. That's a picture of Yeshua also. He is our knight in shining armor. He's the one who wears the most, like, the toughest spiritual armor you can imagine. The enemy can't touch him. And he's on our side. I like that. Okay. So, that's how, that's what I had to say about knights. Remember that was in, our, in my title? The other part of the talk, Colin, can you help me with this? We have one more picture in here, and it's about the bells. I like, I like object lessons and demonstrations and stuff. Okay, it says, did you guys notice what it says around the, like, the fringes of the high priest's garment? Yeah, yeah, bring it I'll just put this down on the floor first. Um, it says, heavy, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, I need to put the towel there. Just move it forward. Thanks. It says there were bells and pomegranates. Now, like, what kind of mental image do you get 
of a guy wearing garments that have like little dinglings and like little pieces of fruit on the edges. <laughs> like, okay, what's with the bells and pomegranates, right? Like, okay, bells, does that mean he's a little, he's a dingling? Like, what exactly does this mean, right? And uh, I'm just going to reference this verse. You can put the slide, you, you can put that down before you kind of get out of hand here, Colin. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. Here, here's something interesting. The pomegranates in Hebrew symbolism are a picture of masculinity. Everybody say masculinity. Okay, so the high priest had no issues with gender confusion. He was not effeminate. He was a real man. And this is a picture of Messiah also. That's what the pomegranates are a picture of. <laughs> and what about the bells? Okay, here's the interesting thing. The Hebrew word for bells is pa'amon. Everybody say pa'amon. And it means three, at least three things in Hebrew. Pa'amon does mean bells because the root is pa'am. That's the verb. Everybody say pa'am. Okay, and that literally means like uh, when a blacksmith is pounding on his anvil, he is pa'aming over and over again. All right? It's like repetitive pounding. That's what the, that's what the sound for bells is. Uh, bell is a pa'amon. Um, pa'amon means an anvil. Everybody say anvil. And it means the hoofbeats of a galloping war steed. Everybody say hoofbeats. Okay, so... The little, the little dinglings on the edge of the high priest's garment, the other two ways you could translate that are anvil or hoofbeats. Okay? Same word in Hebrew. So when a Hebrew-thinking person is reading about the high priest's garment, they see this guy wearing a coat of mail, and like they have this sound in their minds of hoofbeats, like thundering across the ground. They have this sound in their mind of an anvil being pounded. And I'm just going to give you an interesting example of that word. Actually, I feel like giving you a demonstration first. I thought I'd wear my leather gloves just for the experience. Um, this thing's pretty loud, so you may want to cover your ears for it. So, that verb to pa'am, to like to strike or thr- hit something or impel, it's like this. So that's, that's, the, that's the idea behind the bells. It's not just a little dingling. I'm going to give you a really interesting example of where this term comes up. When I first encountered this, as I was reading through the Tanakh in Hebrew, I couldn't believe it. I was like, why does it have this word for anvils and striking anvils? It's uh, the book of Shoftim, Judges, chapter 13, verse 25. It's about Shimshon, about Samson. In uh, Judges 13, 25... It's going to be harder for me to turn there with my gloves on, but I love these gloves. They're so comfy. Um, I wear them all the time. Okay, Judges 13, 25. It says, oh, actually, I'll start in verse 24. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Shimshon, Samson. And the boy grew up and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to pa'am him in Machanedan, between Zorah and Eshtel. My, my version says stir him, which reminds me of stirring my coffee in the morning, but the Hebrew word is pa'am, 
like the Hebrew word is, the Spirit of Yahweh began to pound him repetitively at a certain point in his life. This isn't a bad thing. It's like Samson was being massively impacted by God, by the revelation of who God is, by, by the word that the Almighty was speaking to him. That's the word. How do you spell that word? Pa'am? Uh, P-A-A, uh, in Hebrew English. Oh, pay ein noon. Oh, sorry, uh, mem. Pay ein mem. Uh, if you want to spell bell, then it's pay ein mem, and then a noon on the end. Pa'amon. So anyway, um, isn't that an awesome picture of our high priest? He is, he is a blacksmith. Um, our high priest Yeshua is a knight. Um, a picture of Sometimes what the work of the Holy Spirit looks in our lives. Wow. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna just pound this a little bit more and you can plug your ears, but I want you to just stop and, and think about that for a second. Think about think about how this is a picture of the high priest and his job in the temple. Think about how this is a picture of Yeshua as our high priest in the heavens and his his work that he accomplished. Think about how this is a picture of you when you are functioning in prayer, alright? Just think too of how that's that's somehow that sound communicates what's gonna what it's gonna be like when Yeshua comes back. That's what it's like that's what it's gonna be like when Yeshua comes back. Like that's what happens when we pray. That's that's what happens when the Holy Spirit went into the Holy of Holies. Wow, hey? And I'm gonna hit it once more. So carry. It. That's what happens when we when he impacts us. When you pray for someone and the Spirit comes. Wow. So I, I pray that for each of us, that we'll have that experience with him. Amen. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.